Well, good morning. Thank you, musicians. I was sitting there thinking, as we sang that last song, He is Lord. That's an Easter song. That's not a Christmas song. Christmas is when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And then for the other 364 days out of the year, we are never to talk about his birth. It's such a silly thought, though, isn't it, that because we have seasons commemorating these momentous events in the life of Jesus, you won't hear a lot of messages about, what's that? You want me to blow them out? Yeah. You don't want me to catch the church on fire? Was anybody else worried that Rory was going to burn his sleeve on fire as he was reaching over there? We were. But it is kind of strange that what we do when we begin to celebrate these seasons is that we assume that that's the only time we should talk about it. Great songs like Joy to the World, if that joy is relevant the other 364 days of the year. If that joy exists all the time. And um, I, I feel like I never hear or see anything about the baby Jesus until December. And that's really unfortunate because of the importance of what exactly that moment meant for the world. You know, they say that nurses make the worst patients. Anybody ever heard that? Amen. Who'd amen over there? They say nurses make the worst patients. And I think it's also true to say that pastors make the worst uh, audience when you go to Christmas pageants because the whole time I'm there I'm picking it apart and I'm ruining it for my wife it didn't happen like that it didn't happen like this there weren't wise men there on the same night that the shepherds were there the wise men didn't show up for two years later that scene is not correct I mean I'm just obnoxious and the whole time while we're there we went to a Christmas pageant this past Friday night and if you've never been to the Fort Lauderdale Christmas pageant you got to go it's, uh, it's really neat. They, they did a nice job with it. It's won uh, Emmys or whatever the awards are that you give to pageants. It's won multiple. And they spare no expense. And they do an excellent job up there. But the whole time I was there, every song, every scene just let me into more and more thoughts about what the Christmas season meant. And how this isolated moment of, of Christ coming as a child can never be separated from the other parts of his life, can never be separated from his message. So if you have your Bibles with me, uh, with, uh, with you this morning, would you turn with me to 1 Timothy 3.16? And this morning what I want to do is, I want to do what the Apostle Paul did when he broke into a Christian hymn that really focused on every part of Jesus' life. And so during this Christmas season, I want us to think about what all of Jesus' life, all of the moments of Jesus mean for us. And not just that one moment. 1 Timothy 3.16, it says this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. We've been studying the mystery of godliness or the mysteries of God when we were looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, specifically chapter 2, 
and we understand those mysteries not to be secrets in the sense that you have to be part of a special group to know them or to understand them. This isn't Freemasonry. It is, however, a secret to those who are perishing and who do not have the Spirit of God. And so these are mysteries, this message of the gospel, Paul calls a mystery, but not in the sense that it is not heard audibly by our physical ears. The real question is whether it is received spiritually by our hearts. And to those who have God's spirit living in them, this is not a mystery. It is the revelation of what God has done in Christ. And so Paul says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, baby Jesus. Vindicated by the angels at his conception, at his birth, at his baptism, at his transfiguration. Those two are, of course, his father. But at his resurrection, at his ascension. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by the angels. He was and is proclaimed among the nations. He is believed on in the world. And he was taken up in glory. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, let us do justice to the right and true reading of your word this morning. And Lord, do what only you can do. Let your Spirit speak through the word today. Let this not be built upon human ingenuity, but be built upon the truth of your word. And we just pray that this might be received, believed on, and that new disciples are made this very morning. Amen. I want to just take this verse, and I want to look at each one of these parts, and I want, I want to unpack it. And then I'm going to have a final application at the very end on just exactly what we are to do with such a verse. So I want to take each one of these uh, little thoughts here. This verse is packed with verbs. And in the Greek and really in English, verbs show the action. They explain to us what, uh, what is being done. And so the, the vast majority of what we're going to look at this morning are the verbs of this passage. And just what the action was that was accomplished in the life of Christ. But I want to start off by looking at this phrase. It says here, the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. There was early on in Christianity a sect that broke off from the Christians and that tried to take philosophical ideas and give them Christian names so that it looked and sounded like Christian, but it really wasn't. That's what heretics do. They use our terms but they don't use our dictionary and this group was known as the Gnostics and what they would do is they would tell people that they had met with the Lord that they were closer to the Lord than his disciples and that he told them something more about salvation something more about truth something more about himself about God and that if they would join these Gnostics, they would learn the secrets of the mysteries of God. This has fascinated people recently in the last 10 or so years. And every time you 
come around to one of the Christian seasons or Christian holidays such as Christmas or Easter, you'll go on A&E or History Channel and you'll see the secrets or the mysteries of the Bible. The lost gospels, the hidden books. And what I want to make clear to you this morning is that Paul, when he says here are the mysteries of godliness, is not talking about something that no one has ever heard. He is not talking about secrets. He is talking about mysteries. And mysteries are known. The question is not whether or not we know the mystery. The question is whether or not we understand or at least apprehend the meaning of the mystery. Everybody's heard of the, um, the San Francisco killer, the Zodiac killer. We've all heard of it. We're not sure exactly who did what. He's never been found. There was just recently a, a documentary that was done on Paramount uh, Studios, and they were trying to chronicle the life of this one man, claiming him to possibly be the Zodiac. So we know the information. A lot of the facts and data are out there. But what do we do with it? This one man, it changed his entire life. He even lost his wife over it. It consumed him. So he knew the facts of the mystery. And there's nothing about the mystery that keeps us from knowing. There is no secret. It's just that we don't know the full details. And for those who do not have the spirit of God, there is a lack of understanding or a lack of ability to understand and comprehend the things of God. As we read in 1 Corinthians 2.7... Paul says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Well, what is that secret and hidden mystery? It is the mystery that has now been revealed to us that Jesus Christ is God's Savior for the world. You've heard this before. Paul says this is... The mystery of godliness. And we know it. It is the message of Jesus Christ. Revealed by God to the world. And the Bible makes it plain that the mystery. While disclosed to all people through the proclamation of the gospel. Which is the good news about who Jesus is. Remains a mystery to those who do not possess God's spirit. This morning, I am preaching to the entire church the message of the mysteries of God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what will you do with it? What you do with it, insofar as living by this mystery... Reveals to everyone and even yourself whether or not God's spirit lives in you. He that has the son has life. What is that life? Well, it looks like something. It not only agrees with the word of God, but it trusts in an acting way. In a way where we actually live by the message. 
Paul says about this, we confess. We confess. What do we confess? It is the mystery of God. And this is not a secret message hidden from the world, at least not in the sense of suppressing its proclamation. The church of the living God lives and breathes the proclamation of the mystery of godliness. The church is eager to express, express verbally and visually, this is from our very covenant, both in personal testimony and holy living, the mystery of godliness, which is the gospel message of Christ. And so if it's such a mystery, if it's such a secret, why does the church live and exist to proclaim this? Paul is simply speaking about the reality, looking 30,000 feet from above, at the reality that some will grasp this message while others will not. When I was at the Fort Lauderdale Christmas pageant this past week, uh, past weekend, I was thinking, gosh, they have sold, you know, spent millions and millions of dollars here to proclaim this story about Jesus. And it's incredibly moving. And they did something very unique this year, which I was very happy to see. They actually had an invitation at the end of, of this um, pageant. And, it, you know, I, I saw people coming and I thought, man, that, that is, that's just, praise God. I hope that's real. Hope those guys aren't staged. Not that I know. But I, I just sat there and I thought, I hope this is real. And then I began to think, how come everybody's not coming? I mean, do you hear the deal that God has made? The covenant agreement that God is making with you this morning, every moment of every day, which is to simply take your sins to his cross, leave them there, and receive eternal life. But to those who have the spirit, this is power and truth. But to those who don't have the spirit, this is a stench of death. The International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention just this past year approved a $270 million budget to take the message of the mystery of godliness to the world. The mystery of godliness just another name for the gospel. Every church should have as its mission the Great Commission, which is to go and make more disciples of Christ through the mystery of godliness, through the story of Christ. Every individual Christian ought to set his mind, ought to set his heart towards his neighbor where he or she is constantly looking for opportunity to reveal, to express in word the mysteries of the gospel. The church is God's embassy on earth where his ambassadors declare to all nations the mystery of his son. Scripture tells us that this is not something that was hidden from our eyes. It was displayed in real time and in real history. Paul says 
in the very next part of verse 16, he was manifested in the flesh. That is, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, came for everyone to see with their eyes, to feel with their hands, to hear with their ears. The Son of God. We are to, as Christians, to proclaim the, as first and foremost that the incarnation of Jesus is a historical fact made known to the world. You know, I hope when you see nativities that in your mind you remember whether or not Jesus was in, born in a cave, as some scholars believe was possible, or whether he was bar, born in a barn, as other scholars believe was possible, that no matter what, God's Messiah really did come to the earth 2,000 years ago. Like really. Like for real. Flesh and bone. It really happened according to the promise of the angel who came to Mary and told Mary, fear not. God has found favor with you. There was really a woman in whom God had found favor. What was the favor? According to his pleasure. And that Christ Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in her 2,000 years ago. Today, we would want to say that in order to make amends with the secular world, that it's a really nice story, but now in light of all of our scientific learning in all of our understanding about the way the world works, we know that you cannot be born from a virgin. Guess what? This might shock you. But the people in those days also knew that you couldn't be born a virgin. The young Mary... I don't know how intelligent she was, but the young Mary asked the angel a very, very just simple question. When he told her, you're pregnant with God's Messiah, she said, how can this be? I'm still a virgin. I am but a virgin. People love to get in. Does that mean that she was just a young woman or that she was actually had never had sex? It means both. They weren't as, what's the word? They didn't have access to prophylactics the way we do. So when you had sex in those days, there was a very good chance that you were going to actually have the consequences of sex. But she asked a very simple question, how can this be? It was made manifest. This was a real historical fact. And no matter what we believe about science, no matter what we believe as we grow and mature about stories, this, as C.S. Lewis said, is the myth that became true. It is the real story of God's supernatural work. And it begins here at the Incarnation. John 1.14 said this, And the Word became flesh 
and he tabernacled, he dwelt among us. And we have seen with our eyes his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, many of us will doubt whether or not that was historically true. But Scripture tells us that if we do not believe the witness of God's apostles and do not believe their witness, their testimony, namely what John just said, that we cannot enter the kingdom of God. So that when John tells us, those who profess to be Christians, that the word became flesh, we are to believe even if we may not be able to comprehend how it is that God can be truly God and truly human in one person, in one person with two natures, how we could understand that is not his concern. It is do we believe that about Christ? Second, the church proclaims not only is the incarnation historical, but that it is the moment where God becomes a suffering servant for his people. The baby Jesus we see in the swaddling clothes, but what we don't often talk about is the indignity of the dirty diapers. Say, Jesus didn't have dirty diapers. He was Jesus. He'd just snap his fingers and they'd be clean. Jesus had dirty diapers. Jesus got sick. I'm sure he went to synagogue nursery and went into that Petri dish and got all the disgusting sicknesses that your kids get. You been playing with that Jesus boy again? You say, this is not what you should be saying. Listen to me. Listen to me well. If you do not grasp the indignity of God becoming flesh, you have missed the point. Thank you. God not only comes in the flesh, but he comes as a servant. Show me the God who serves his people. Read the stories of other religions and other gods. Do they come to suffer the indignity of serving human beings by simply being born in, in, into flesh, into disgusting flesh that could bleed, that could die, that could get sick? God leaving his throne, not counting equality with the Father, something to be held on to, but came, emptied himself. In other words, he was humble and came to the earth as a baby. What a great God we serve. Listen to what Paul said. He said, have this mind among yourselves. In other words... Every believer ought to because they understand the indignity of God being a little baby in a manger. By the way, for those of you who don't know, mangers were where the animals ate from. 
Have you been to a farm recently? There's this new thing where uh, we like to take city folk and we like to put them on a farm and we like to make a reality TV about it. And people are, they eat food, they eat animal food three times a day and it never, you know, it never dawns on them that animals are involved and that it usually, it always requires their death. And then they go on these farms, they see how disgusting they are and then they all become vegetarians until they eat one McDonald's cheeseburger and they're like, this is great. They laid that baby in an animal trough, full of slop, throw up, cud, spit back in it. Have this mind, be like him among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who from his very birth was born humbly. Who though he was in the form of God, that means he deserved all glory. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus' servanthood begins the moment of his incarnation. This God who we serve was made manifest, not just in the flesh, but also as a servant. When people say, is there a God? And if he is there, what is he like? And I'm telling you this morning, he was made in the flesh and he was servant. That is a mighty God. Third, the church proclaims the incarnation as God's propitiation for human sins. That is, that God not only wipes away our sins, but that he actually puts us in a favorable relationship with him. That's what the word propitiate means. Wipe away and put in right standing. Scripture says this. This is in Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. What laid as a baby in a manger was the hope of the forgiveness of sins. Fourth, the church proclaims the incarnation as God's victory over death and his redemption of human flesh. Somehow we've gotten the idea as Christians that when we die, we're never going to have a body again, but we're going to be like Casper the Friendly Ghost, flowing around on uh, clouds, playing harps, shooting bows and golden bows and arrows into people's butts and if they look at the next person they fall in love with that i mean all of these silly things that we have about what heaven is like scripture tells us that the new life is the life of the redeemed body you know the body that gets sick is not supposed to be the body that god intended us to have His intention was that we might be born out from under the curse of sin. But Adam, our first parent, fell from grace. But the incarnation is the hope that the flesh 
this body that gets cancer, this body that will die, this body that gets heart disease, this body that sorrows, this body that hungers, this body that has debilitating anxiety will one day be made right. Why? Because God came to the earth. He was made manifest in the flesh. This is God's victory. Christ is called the first fruits of those who belong to him. That is that in the resurrection we see evidence of what our dead and decaying bodies will be if we have faith. If we trust in the gospel of Jesus. Just like Christ was raised to incorruptible flesh, born out of the Spirit of God, so too will all those who are in His name. It also says here that He was vindicated by the Spirit. I love that word vindicate. The, the word vindicate means to be, to be, to, to forget our suspicion about someone. We, we, we have a view of someone, we think they're this way, and to be vindicated is to say, oh, oh, I didn't know that piece of information. That means that I thought wrong and that that person is actually innocent. Paul says he was vindicated by the Spirit. That's... That's a big enough deal that in this early Christian hymn, it's very likely that that's what this section was in 1 Timothy 3.16. Something that was an early Christian hymn that even predated Paul. That we have here Paul mentioning the vindication of Christ. Why is that important? At his conception, it was his mother who was to be found an adulteress. Hey, think about that. Young women, women. Angel came to Mary and told Mary she was pregnant with God's son. But he didn't go and tell everyone else. She wasn't married. You know what that's like. You've seen it happen. Young girl gets pregnant. She has to unfortunately bear physically... What the boy doesn't have to bear for nine months. Think about this. Mary, in the incarnation, was almost certainly viewed as a fornicator in a very religious town. And it wasn't until the resurrection that anybody could say for sure, oh my gosh, she really was a virgin. 33 years of being thought to be immoral. A young girl minding her own business. But at his conception... At his birth, born in a manger in the inglorious manger, would raise in glory. 
at his baptism, baptized in the Jordan, filthy Jordan River, would send his Holy Spirit and baptize men and women as though by tongues of fire. Yet he was constantly scrutinized. And scrutinized by politicians, by religious people who were of the very same nationality. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, who by the way were political and religious rivals, united around this one thing. We are at least going to destroy God's Messiah. They were politic and political and spiritual rivals. The Pharisees questioned Jesus' interpretation of the Old Testament, while the Sadducees questioned his mentality or his uh, mental ability and his mental stability and his interpretation of reality. You see, the Pharisees were the really religious people of the day. God required fasting once a year, they did it twice a week. If God said dress modestly, they came in and they said, you can only wear skirts that go down to your ankles. God said don't eat that. They not only didn't eat it, they didn't even eat it if it had been around the thing. The thing that was unclean. If a Gentile shadow had fallen on them, they were to wash their bodies. They were so religious. They went to church every Sunday. They brought their Bibles. They wore a suit and tie. You understand I'm being facetious here. But they were the real religious people. And they hated Jesus. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were equal opportunists and simply believed that there was no such thing as a resurrection. They were the people who were cool with the world. They were the religious people who were religious. They wore the WWJD, but when you sat down with them and you began to talk about real doctrine, they weren't really committed to the stories. Matthew 16, 1 says, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And we all know Jesus could do it. Could you imagine if we had that power? If I had the power to show signs as a sinful man, I'd be showing everyone. I'd be shooting laser beams out of my hand. I'd be making birds appear out of nowhere. Jesus says, your heart. Listen to what he says. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. You know why? Do you know why? Because salvation does not rest upon what we see with our eyes but upon what we trust with our hearts.
Jesus gave a parable of a rich man and Lazarus, a poor man. And in this parable, the, both of these men die. And it says that the poor man was in Abraham's bosom. That is, that he was part of Abraham's flock. He was with God in the kingdom of heaven. And that the rich man was in hell. And the rich man in this story has the ability to look over into heaven. And he asks, can you just dip your finger in water and let just one drip touch my tongue? And Abraham says, I can't do that. There's a great chasm between us. It's impossible. Once you're there, you're there. There's no getting out. It doesn't matter how much you pay the Pope. It doesn't matter how many beads are twisted on your wrist. Once you're in hell, you're there. Once you're in heaven, you're there. But then he says this. He says, okay, if you won't save me, just do this. Send me back from the dead, someone from the dead, to go and proclaim what this place is so that my family might be saved. And the response is fascinating. Let them listen to the apostles or to the prophets because if they won't listen to the prophets, it doesn't matter if you show them a sign. It won't matter if you can do amazing things. Because the heart that trusts is the heart that is saved. If you're waiting for God to show you a sign this morning, you're not going to get one. Or if you do get one, understand that's not the gospel. The gospel is not built upon signs, it's built upon a message of truth. But vindication. Constantly Jesus was under suspicion. His character though was vindicated at the resurrection. If God raised him up by the power of the Holy Spirit, then how could anyone doubt what he taught? There was an amazing story in Mark chapter 2 where some friends found out Jesus was in Capernaum. They had a disabled, uh, disabled friend of theirs. They went to this meeting at this house. It was completely packed. It was so full that there was no room. They went to the top of the house. And in those days, the houses had clay roofs. And they had to dig a little bit away. And they finally got a space big enough to put him down. That was a pretty big hole in a roof. And I hope they came back and replaced it but they put him down on a mat and lowered him to Jesus so that he could get healed and here comes the man down on the mat the paralytic and Jesus looking at Jesus knowing what's about to happen in just moments from now he'll be dancing he'll be running what would you give if you lost the ability to walk and to run and for all of my Caribbean people's dance. And Jesus says to him, which is easier, for me to forgive his sins or for me to tell him to get up and walk? First, he tells the man before he asks that question, your sins are forgiven. What an utter disappointment. 
I came to have legs again and you just forgave me of my sins? I don't care about that. I want to run. I want to play basketball again. I don't think they had basketball in those days. And Jesus says, I forgive you of your sins. And then people start to question. He says, let me ask you, what's easier? To tell this man uh, that his sins are forgiven or to tell him to get up and walk. Now, just, just really quickly, what is easier? Well, what's easier is obviously to tell him your sins are forgiven. Because there's no proof of that. There's no way to vindicate it. No way. How do you vindicate that? Your sins are forgiven. Hank, your sins are forgiven. I think. How would we prove that? Which should Hank be in a wheelchair and I say, Hank, get up and walk. Oh, boy. Here at the resurrection, we have the vindication of everything Jesus said or did. Said it, believe upon my name. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. I don't like that. That sounds too exclusivistic. Jesus needs to be up with the times. He needs to be more inclusive and more tolerant of other people. Yeah, but he raised from the dead and you didn't. So whether I like that or I don't, the question is, am I going to go with the guy who raised from the dead or the dead man walking? I'm going with the man who raised from the dead. He was vindicated, Paul says, by the Spirit. Not only that, he was seen by the angels. People say, oh, I wish, just, I wish God would show us just a little bit more. But he was seen by the angels. Every time Jesus, some momentum, momentous occasion in Jesus' life happens, the angels are there. And you know it's real. You know it's real because every time the angels proclaim to human beings, they always have to begin with, don't be afraid. You know why? Because they're scary. I, I talk to people all the time. Oh, yeah, I've got an angel. He sits with me and he talks with me. Or I've got angels. Or God came and talked to me. And no one's ever scared. I mean, come on. If angels just started popping out in midair, you wouldn't be scared. Paul went blind. Peter told Jesus to go away. He was unclean. The shepherds freaked out. Mary was scared. Isaiah asked for coals to burn his lips. The glory of God is a terrifying thing. Every time this Jesus has come in momentous occasions, we have angels there. He was seen by the angels. A reference to the many angelic manifestations that proclaimed God's coming. It was at his conception an angel told Mary that she had found favor with the Most High. At his birth an angel told the shepherds, Fear not, for behold I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is, a, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. At his baptism and transfiguration the very voice of God the Father proclaimed, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. At his resurrection to angels. Angels in dazzling apparel stood by the tomb of Jesus and said to the women, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. 
Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day arise? Perhaps it was these same two angels at his ascension who exhorted the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And it will be angels who will precede his second coming. Angels are a sign they are a symbol that God approves of everything Christ has done, has said, and will do. They, are, they were created simply to serve God. Paul goes on, he says, he was proclaimed among the nations. The Christian church did not end with Christ's death and the resurrection, it began. This story is not over, but lives with us. The work of Christ's followers here and now is to make more disciples in his name. And this proclamation is verbal and visual, and it is based on both word and deed, and not to the heavy of one or the other. Let me explain. We all, watched, we all watched George H. Was it H.W. Bush? It wasn't W., right? George H. Bush? The one who just passed away. I always get them confused. George H.W. The father passed away, George Bush. And I watched the funeral. And I was on the elliptical machine, and it's always hard to read, you know, uh, closed captioning, but I was reading it. And uh, I wanted to see when were they going to preach. So they finally got to the preaching part, and the preacher came up, and he said this saying, and you've all heard this saying before. And he, he, it, was like, it was like the dismount of the sermon. It was the biggie. And it was this. Preach Christ always, and if necessary, use words. And I, I, it was as if I could, I, I could see Satan just sitting there going, yes! Amen. Whatever you do, don't say it. Whatever you do, think that your good behavior is the only thing you need to show people to believe in Jesus. Because the gospel of salvation is news. It is words. It is Message, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. How will one believe unless someone preaches? For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Preach my word, Timothy, in season and out of season, when people want it and when they don't want it. It was by word that God created the heavens and the earth. And for heaven's sake, Jesus is called the word of God. Away with this nonsense that you can be a Christian and not proclaim with your mouth that you love Jesus, I know why you don't 
say Jesus' name in mixed rooms. Nothing ruins the night quicker. Oh, everybody's having fun smoking cigars and drinking beer. Hey, let's talk about Jesus. Jesus' name was called to Jews. He was a stumbling block. He was foolishness to Greeks. But this is the great message of God. Now you say, so is is this pastor wrong? He is only telling you half truth. Let me ask you something. If your doctor gave you medicine and told you, only half the truth about how to take it, knowing that the only way to cure it is that you got to get the full dose, and you only took half and died, would you be mad at him? I mean, just let's say you do come back as a ghost. Would you be mad at him? Should your family be mad? Yeah. Listen to me. Listen to me well. Christ was crucified for your sins. If you don't believe on his name, you don't have life. But what about the good people? I am the way and the truth and the life. But I don't like that. But he rose from the dead. You understand? It's both your word and your deed. But if if you really believe this, Christian, if you really believe these words, what does your life say? How are you living? Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Because faith without works is dead. But listen, you can never say, well, this is more important than this. No. They go hand in hand. He was proclaimed amongst the nations, but also not only was he proclaimed, he was believed on in the world. At the Areopagus in Athens, it was the place where people went to talk and to philosophize Uh, For us, it's like Starbucks. Paul proclaimed the gospel. But only a few believed on it. Others were curious, while others mocked the resurrection. But the mystery of godliness does not stop at who Christ was, but continues on through the power of the gospel made manifest in our lives. You know, I already told you I was really annoying at that program the other night. The first thought that I had when they did the invitation to the program was, I hope that, th- that that's real and not staged. We found out later that Billy Graham did that. That sometimes he would have people come to, to just make it look like they were coming. And it would get people out of their seats and they would come. And it's a little evangelist thing that they would do. Now, my grandfather was saved at a Billy Graham crusade, which led to my father's salvation and which ultimately led to mine. The second question that I had was, what are you going to do when you leave here tonight? Where will you be tomorrow? Where will you be a week from now? A month from now? A year from now? Ten years from now, at your deathbed. You see, coming down front, down the aisle to pray a prayer, 
is the beginning. You say, I thought once saved, always saved. Yes, but once saved, live saved. That's a better one. For if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It doesn't matter if you came once and said you made a commitment, but haven't served the Lord Jesus ever since. In fact, the Holy Spirit should be convicting you with his hand clenched so tightly on your heart you can't even breathe that you ought to be serving God all of the days of your life. He was believed on. So not only was it proclaimed, but he was believed on. People really changed their lives. Zacchaeus, who had, he was rich, he had stolen, he gave back fourfold of anything that he took. He believed on Jesus. He believed the message, and he knew he did wrong, and he went and he did right as best he could. But then it says here, he was taken up in glory. The end. Taken up in glory. This holiday season will be spent around images and pageants where we commemorate the babe in the manger. Swaddled unthreateningly like all babies cooing sweetly in his mother's arms. They did this momentous scene at the pageant where they came out with a real baby. And I was thinking... I would never let my baby go out on stage. But they just sat there and they were holding it. And the mother and everybody, oh, and everybody was, oh, my gosh. Oh, it was so cute, this real widow baby in a widow wiper. He's so unthreatening. You know what never comes out in those pageants? Where Jesus called the Pharisees, you hypocrites, you Brita vipers. Who warned you to flee, as, J as John said, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? But the babe grew up, lived among us, died on the cross, was buried, was raised, and ascended unto the Father. And the angels warned the disciples, and they warn all of us today not to be idle in our memories of a baby or of a man. See, when Jesus ascended, the angels didn't say to the disciples and the believers who were there, wasn't that cool? At the end of the program, Jesus, uh, he, he goes off like a rocket. It's like he... He pulls up, and there's always that awkward moment where the, where the chain gets stuck, and he's, like, he's putting his hands up, and smoke's coming out, and he's, bing, you know, like this. But they don't show the judgment at the end of these pageants, right? They don't show when the skies rip open. And as the angels warned us, that in the same way he ascended in glory, he will come back in glory, and he will come back to judge the living and the dead. Because that's a nice thought. Oh, Jesus shot off like a rocket. Bye, Jesus. Oh. Well, that was cool. Let me go fornicate. 
He will come at the moment we least expect it, and it will be in glory. You've, every once in a while, there's some crazy cult leader who comes back and says, I'm Jesus return. No, he's not. How will we know when Jesus returns? Don't worry. Everyone will have a ticket to the event. Because the same Jesus who ascends in glory comes back in glory. But this time he comes to judge the living and the dead. You see, here's my point this morning. Paul proclaims the entire message of the gospel of Jesus and doesn't isolate it to Christmas and Easter sermons. Because if you take the baby, you must take the crucified. And if you take the crucified, you must take the judge. And if you take the judge, you must take the king. And all of his words with it. With Jesus, it's everything or it's nothing. You know, the most interesting thing about this passage is the two verses that precede it. If you have your Bibles, just look at them with me. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon... But I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The whole point to Paul's glorious hymn that he speaks of the message of Christ is that the Christian church begins with the gospel and is sustained by the gospel. This is not a one-time message, but it is the power of God in your life from the moment you committed to follow him to the moment of your last breath. Remember what Jesus told his disciples. And lo, I am with you always, even until the ends of the earth. Who is with me? The one who was manifest in the flesh. The one who was vindicated by the Spirit. The one who was seen by angels. The one who was proclaimed among the nations. The one who was believed on in the world. The one who was taken up in glory and will return in glory. In all of our sentimentality this Christmas season around the babe in the manger. If we have multiple nativity scenes. But we fail to believe and behave according to this mystery of godliness. Not only do we, or not only do our nativity scenes fall by the wayside, but our faith is in vain. Lord, help us this morning to believe in this gospel. Give us the spirit that will help us and enable us to believe what we cannot believe. Namely, that you were manifested among the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, 
that you were proclaimed amongst the nations and believed on in the world and that you ascended unto glory. Help us to believe that. And as Paul tells us, to behave all the days of our lives accordingly. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.